Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The great Otis Redding songs are reaching a very young audience in new form. Children's books based on the lyrics to Redding's famous songs. The Otis Redding Foundation commissioned the books. Carla Redding Andrews is the executive director and the musician's daughter. Later this hour, we'll hear about Respect, the first children's book in the series based on the lyrics to Otis Redding's famous song. First, showing proper respect for all of those who served our country in the early 20th century. When it began, It was supposed to be the war to end all wars. We know too well that was not so. And until now, the 4.7 million Americans who served in World War I did not have an official tribute in the nation's capital. Atlanta architect Joe Weishar designed the National World War I Memorial, which opened in Washington, D.C. earlier this month. He's with us now via Zoom. Joe Weishar, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Why do you think it's taken more than 100 years to have an official World War I Memorial in D.C.? There were several contributing factors. The World War I generation is really remarkable in that they didn't really want to be remembered when they returned home from war. A lot of them felt as though they did their duty and just sort of went back to daily life. They were remembered in their small towns. A lot of them had local markers in the town square of those who served in and died. But there was nothing really at that time done on the national level. It wasn't until uh, the Vietnam Memorial in 1982 that we really started building national memorials. And once that process started, it really went in reverse chronological order. So Vietnam came first, and then the Korean Memorial, then World War II. Unfortunately, you know, work in reverse order like that, it wasn't until we had no living veterans that we got around to building the World War I Memorial. You mentioned Vietnam. If 
Vietnam was the war that came into our homes via television. World War I was the war that, can we say it took away the glory what soldiers came home with in terms of injuries. Well, first of all, the number of deaths and the trench warfare, the horror of it. Do you think that it was the end of valor? In many ways, yes, because I think once you started having wars that were you know, on the radio and televised, they could become political tools where World War I, you know, in so many ways was never viewed by people at home other than, you know, maybe through the news. The reasons why I think World War I were fought um, were really, it was the last clash of empires, sort of a quest for global dominance. After that, the political nature of wars and trying to say, you know, we're winning for some other ideal really started taking over. How did you first become involved with the project? I didn't become involved with it until I came across the competition. Um, and that was probably March of 2015. When I came across it, I didn't know anything about World War One. I. I had one to two weeks of World War One education from junior high and high school. This entire process has been a, a re-education in the war and what it actually meant and, and was like. And it caused a real disconnect that there was this entire piece of world history that I seemed to be missing. So many of the people who served were about 20 to 25 years old, um, very much where I was at, at that point in my life. I was 25 when I submitted the first design. Hmm. If I'd been alive 100 years ago, that would have been my life. I'm from a small town in Arkansas originally, and 70,000 men and women from Arkansas um, served in World War I. Many of them, it was the first time they had left their town or the state, let alone traveling halfway around the world to fight in a, a global conflict. <laughs> there was a song, a popular song. How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? Mm -hmm. Kind of captured what it must have been for small town Americans to get their first taste of Europe. How did you become involved? Can you tell us how you were chosen? So it was a open international two-stage competition. I submitted a design. At the time, I was just an intern at an architecture firm in Chicago. I submitted a design and sort of forgot about it. <laughs> and in August of 2015, I got a series of missed phone calls from a number I didn't recognize. They said, uh, are you sitting down? We have some, some wonderful news to share. I'd been chosen as one of five finalists to participate in the second round of the competition. I had never been to Washington, D.C. And the first time I went to D.C. Uh, was just a couple weeks after that to meet with the other finalists. Each one of the other finalists was sort of a well-established firm, and they brought three to four people in their entourage and, and had their <laughs> suits. I was in the rental suit and just just thrilled to be there. 
And so it, it became a very intense four months of building the, a design team, uh, finding a sculptor. And during all of that, I was working full time because if I didn't end up winning the competition, I still needed a job at the end of, of everything. It was probably one of the most chaotic periods in my life. But in the end, because I think I showed a resourcefulness, all of that sort of triumphed. And in January 16, uh, it was announced that I was going to be the lead designer for the memorial. What was your reaction? Complete surprise. <laughs> you see all those competition shows on TV, and, and when somebody is the winner, they they sort of lose their minds and it's the best day of their lives. It was like that. It took a couple of weeks for maybe the harsh reality to set in just because you win the competition. Now you actually have to build it. Ah, well, it was a project of tremendous magnitude. Tell us why Pershing Park was designated as the site to service the new World War I memorial. During the site selection process that the World War I Commission went through, they had three different sites in play. One option was to restore and build upon the DC War Memorial, uh, which is located on the mall just slightly east of the Korean Memorial. Second option was uh, Constitution Gardens on the north side of the mall, just north of the reflecting pool. And the third option was Pershing Park, Everybody kept telling them, there is already a national memorial in D.C. It's Pershing Park. I don't think anybody thought that the site at the time rose to the level of a national memorial. It was just the statue of General Pershing on a pedestal. But there was enough there, and it was a good enough location that I think everybody felt confident we could take it on and, and do something great with it. I was wondering when you said that your exposure to World War I history was a few weeks in junior high and high school, were you familiar with General Pershing? No, not at all. I don't, I don't think I could have picked him out of the lineup. <laughs> and could you explain his importance to American history, to the American role in World War I? So General Pershing was General of the Armies, which is the highest rank possible in any of the armed forces. The only other person to ever hold that title was George Washington. And even that was sort of granted posthumously. General Pershing was really the only one to ever assume that role while in active command and built up the American force from you know, about 100,000 soldiers to the 4.7 million in a span of, of roughly six months. Army, Navy, the Coast Guard, there was no Air Force. It was known as the United States Signal Corps. And in the end, they mobilized um, just over 2 million troops to Europe in less than 18 months. Here in Atlanta, we have Pershing Point. Did that take on new meaning for you after you became involved with the World War I Memorial in D.C.? So many, um, so many different streets and parks and things around the country took on new meaning. As soon as I started, not just the Pershings out there, but advisors to Pershing, the Trumans and the Hummel, and the guys that really became the stars of World War II, got their starts in World War I. And so there's a great 
I would say almost overlooked amount of both technology and global influence that we still feel today from World War One. Its impacts were ever-reaching. Atlanta architect Joe Weishar. We'll return to more of our conversation about the new World War I memorial he designed after a short break. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightses. Thank you for listening. We're back with Atlanta architect Joe Weishar, who designed the new National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. Here, he talks about the central component to the memorial, a soldier's journey. So A Soldier's Journey is an immensely complex work of sculptural art uh, by the sculptor Saban Howard. When I first started this process, the only idea that I had was that I wanted to visually tell the story of World War I. And when I hired Saban, that was the direction I gave him. Sculpt the story of World War I. And it has since taken on a life of its own as I said before, it's sort of incredibly complex. Uh, it's really three different stories sort of woven together. So left to right, there are 38 different figures. They really tell the story of a soldier you know, leaving his family, going off to war, joining up with other soldiers from different cultures and groups, being involved in the conflict, suffering the horrors of war, both injury, loss, shell shock, which we now know as post-traumatic stress disorder, and then returning home. On the national level, you have the United States you know, being an isolationist nation at the start of the war and sort of an agrarian nation and taking a role as a world superpower by the end. I think there's a great other narrative that flows through that's recognizable by most all other veterans of other wars of, again, sort of the leaving leaving your home and being involved in this life-changing event and then having to return home and sort of reconcile all those different things that you've experienced. So Sabin's wife, uh, Tracy, is a novelist. And one morning at breakfast, they were sitting there discussing the sculpture. And she said, you know, you're doing the Joseph Campbell monomyth of a hero's journey. We had never thought about it in those terms before, but it is the great saga that you find in all cultures. The sculpture has really resonated with people all around the world. They all see themselves and see their role in World War I in it slightly differently. This is... An important point you're taking us to because 
now we're in a moment where we're trying to fill in missing pieces and important omissions for historic context. There were many black soldiers who enlisted in World War I, saw it as an opportunity to serve and further prove their mettle, if you will, as Americans. And I notice you acknowledge some women. Would you talk about those aspects? Absolutely. Um, and that is one of the big things that's often forgotten about World War I, is that there were so many marginalized segments of society who all came together sort of for a united cause. And so many groups that fought on behalf of the United States, even though they were denied basic freedoms at home, as you mentioned, women, African-Americans, Native Americans, who weren't even considered American citizens in their own country. I think the sculpture, it doesn't necessarily gloss over those, but we've had to take certain artistic license on some of them. So we have seven women, we have four African-Americans and Native American, Asian American faces of different models that are Southern European, Eastern European descent, Hmm. all mixed together. But the reality that we've had to contend with is for the African-Americans, when most of them got over to Europe, they were still in segregated units or the American officers didn't want to work with them or train them, but they still fought. We've had this issue of sort of how to reconcile what we're displaying in the sculpture of them sort of going off to war arm in arm with each other when that really wasn't the case. There are a lot of subtle clues that we've added into the sculpture, such as a lot of the African-Americans, uh, when they actually fought, served under French command. The French helmets in World War I are known as the Adrian helmet. Uh, it sort of has a, a reinforcing piece of metal down the middle uh, compared to the, the pie plate helmet that we think of for the Americans and the British. And so all of the African-American soldiers are wearing the French helmet and the French uniform. The French uniform? Mm-hmm. So even though they're standing there arm in arm with their American comrades, they're designated as being different in in subtle ways. It was fascinating to read about the technology used Mm -hmm. in creating this memorial. How did 3D technology and high-speed cameras help the sculptor? That was was an incredible journey that spanned three different continents. Sabin is a very classically trained sculptor. Uh, Everything he's sort of ever done in his career up to this point was drawn by hand and sculpted by hand. But this piece is 60 feet long. When it's completed, it'll be the largest bronze high relief in the Western Hemisphere. It's absolutely enormous. And sculpting something like that by hand, drawing it by hand, is a 15 to 20 year undertaking easily. And so we had to figure out how to augment Saban's process to speed it up. But the issue is when you start using a lot of digital methods, you lose quality and you lose the artistic touch that comes from doing things by hand. So along the way, we got involved with several different film studios. So Weta Workshop down in New Zealand was a big collaborator early on, and they showed us how you can take 
a digital drawing and augment it into three dimensions and then take a live capture version of the people in those same poses and superimpose them together. When we found the foundry who was going to do all the bronze casting in Stroud in the UK, they had a photographer on staff named Steve Russell. We're telling him about this augmented reality and sort of the motion capture. And he said, there's something I really want to try. He created what we call a photosphere. It's 160 SLR cameras that take a picture simultaneously. Oh my. It's an incredible amount of data, but you can almost capture models moving in real time as a series of of three-dimensional photographs. So we were able to put a picture up on the screen of one of Sabin's drawings, and you could tell the model to turn your head a little bit to the left and raise your arm slightly. And when they got into the right position, they would set off all the cameras and, and capture the model in full 3D. From that, uh, we were able to 3D print a foam armature that got covered in sort of a thin layer of clay that was sprayed onto it. That became the basic structure for what Sabin was then able to sculpt over top of. And so instead of him having to spend years and years building all these armatures and getting all the poses right, it was just sort of delivered to his studio in about six months. (laughs) But there's still a timeline for completion of a soldier's journey, isn't there? There is. So Sabin's been adding all of the hand techniques over top of what he's been doing. And the first nine figures have already been shipped back to the UK for casting. What is in its place now? In its place now, we've put up sort of a large copy of Sabin's original drawing for the sculpture. That will be replaced in sections as he finishes each section of clay just so people can sort of follow along with the progress. When it first went up last week, there was maybe a lot of question about, you know, is this it or or what's it going to look like? And so we're hoping by sort of swapping things out fairly quickly, uh, that first section of, of clay photographs will be up probably in just a couple of weeks. And the final sculpture itself will be installed in 2024. What other elements are part of the Memorial Park? There are several. So we have a educational overlook that really forms the hinge in the middle of the park between the existing Pershing Memorial and this new Soldier's Journey sculpture. And one of the key components of the World War I Commission has been education of the re-education of World War I to the United States. They provided an amazing new wealth of content for America's educators. Panels that you can read the history while you're in the park. There is a app for Android and Apple that you can use in the park for augmented reality. Uh, and there's also a standalone version of the app that teachers can use in the classroom. Did you mention the Peace Fountain? I did not. On the reverse side of the sculpture, is an area that we've just sort of named the Peace Fountain. It's a cascade fountain that has in the middle of it a quote from Archibald MacLeish that he wrote grieving his brother Kenneth's death. Both he and his brother were in World War I. 
And McLeish went on to win three Pulitzer Prizes. He was the Librarian of Congress, worked for the Treasury Department for a bit. Really an amazing individual. But he wrote a poem called The Young Dead Soldiers, Do Not Sleep. We took the last four lines of that quote or of that poem for the Peace Fountain Wall. We thought it was important to make an acknowledgement of peace and the search for peace because that was ultimately one of the goals of Woodrow Wilson's. It did lead to the United Nations and an international level of cooperation. Surprisingly, not this memorial is completed, it is the only memorial in D.C. that actually talks about peace and the search for peace. It's really a good way to round out the collection of memorials to wars of the 20th century. Our last global pandemic, the Spanish flu, broke out during World War I. Does it add another layer of significance to this memorial being erected during the COVID-19 pandemic? It absolutely does add another layer to it. Unfortunately, we stopped the design process before COVID-19 started, and so we weren't able to include any of that information, but we were able to add it into the app and the panels, the educational content. We built in features that can be edited as new information comes up or comes to light. Joy Shark, congratulations. And thank you so very much. This has been most interesting. My pleasure. Atlanta architect Joe Weishard designed the new National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. You can find more information about the memorial on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Next Tuesday, please join us for City Lights Live at the Georgia Tech Skyline Stage. I'll host a concert with musicians from ATL Collective performing the soul of Georgia, an evening of soul music. Tickets are at wabe.org. Speaking of soul, still ahead this hour, Otis Redding's song Respect has been adapted as a children's book. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Tomorrow evening, I'll host City Lights Live, The Soul of Georgia, an outdoor concert of songs from Georgia's soulful past. The event will take place on the Georgia Tech Skyline stage. Musicians from the ATL Collective will perform a fantastic lineup of songs, including those by Ray Charles, Gladys Knight, and Otis Redding. Let's listen back to our conversation with Otis Redding's daughter, Carla Redding Andrews, director of the Otis Redding Foundation. We spoke last fall about their children's book, Respect, here, she explains how the project came about. Well, it was quite interesting. Um, I think what happened was, is a, a lot of organizations had been paying attention to what we at the Otis Reading Foundation had been doing as it relates to literacy and music and arts education. 
And then going back to how adamant my parents were about education and reading. So somehow we teamed up with Akashi Books to present this beautifully illustrated song lyric book that that talks about what is so so needed in the world today and and will be always be needed in the world today. Oh yes. In fact, I said your dad wrote one of the greatest songs of the 20th century, but it's really a song for our time and has never diminished in its impact or appeal. Now, your dad wrote the lyrics in 1965, and his song recording became a hit. Two years later, Aretha Franklin recorded her version, and that peaked at number one on Billboard's Hot 100 list in 1967. Aretha's interpretation has a feminist take on the song. It's very much a feminist anthem. How does this book present a children's story from your father's lyrics? Well, you know, what we really did with with the book and, and when I was working with the book publisher, and we were trying to determine, should we, should we intertwine the lyrics? Should we just use Otis Redding's lyrics? Or should we use Aretha's lyrics? And really, we felt like Aretha's lyrics and, and her whole chain of the song kind of really relate over to, to kids and young girls today, while still being able to filter over into a young male perspective. You know, it, it kind of takes on both sides of it, actually. And, and it talks about respect for yourself as a young woman or a young man, and also respect for those, the people that you should have around you. What you want, one of you got it. And what you need, baby, you got it. All I'm asking for the respect when I the gamut on, on both the, the, the female and the male perspective, in my opinion. Very much so. And I have been in radio for over 40 years. I've never felt my medium is limited, but I wish people could see these illustrations as we're talking, Carla, because they are as exuberant as the song lyrics and I was wondering if you would talk about some of the images that are portrayed in the storybook and and the messages, the lessons they convey. Absolutely. You know, what we really wanted to 
to come across in this is, is not only for black and brown children, but for children around the world to understand that the word respect will get you to any path that you want to take, any positive path that you want to take, whether it's a teacher or whether you want to fly a plane or whether you want to serve your country. All of those things are about respect. And it's so beautifully depicted in the illustrations by Rachel Moss. And it's so colorful and it, it really just crosses the gamut in terms of diversity with, with the kids and, and the black and the brown and, and the, the white. It's just a cross-pollination of cultures. And, and it understands that respect is, is due to everyone and to be given by everyone. Indeed. And we have so many professions that are portrayed. I'm on a page where I see three women scientists. Well, actually, there are four. Two of them are little girls, and the little puppy dog is also reading the science book. We have a, we have a visual painter. We have ballet dancers and... <laughs> the doctor. We have lawyers, we have judges, you yes. know, we have all just a whole gamut of, of professions that we don't want to limit any imagination to what you can be with, with when you get respect and give respect. There's no limit to the imagination. And so we, you know, we just wanted to make sure that kids knew, listen, Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, these people who worked so hard during their era knew that this one word would make all of the difference uh, in their lives. And, and both of them certainly continue to, to earn respect today by, by what they left, their legacy. And now to be able to put it over onto the pages of a picture book is just amazing. And it, it really takes the song to a whole new level because there are a lot of kids, I'm sure, who have who have heard their parents singing both versions of the song, but now they get to to put their creative spin on it and and read it from for themselves on, on, in this greatly illustrated book. The last two pages of the volume contain questions for the young reader or the young child being read to. Would you please tell us about that concluding section? Absolutely. I think, you know, the illustrators wanted to make sure that this was more than just a book of illustrations and, and words. It was really, a, a, it's a tool to interact with, with kids about what respect means. Can you respect someone even if you are mad at him or her? You know, things that, that certainly fit right into today's culture, into what's going on in the world with, with so much risk of planting negative seeds in your mind. But the learning tool in the back opens up the imagination for a, a, a child to understand, well, all I got to do is give a little bit of respect for myself and I, I will feel a whole lot better. And once I respect someone else, that's even really going to make me feel a whole lot better. So to be able to take these 10 questions uh, that have been created as an interactive learning tool, I think will really spark the imagination even more in kids on how important that the, the word respect means 
and what the, the lyrics in this song means. Mm. Carla Redding Andrews, I am not trying to flatter you when I say that I feel like this book is one of the best things to come out in 2020. Oh, <laughs> it is just pure joy and delivers a message so profound and it's so deeply needed now. I congratulate you and the illustrator, Rachel Moss. And this has just been such a delight. I am one who is in awe of your father's legacy and Thank you for continuing it through the foundation. Oh, thank you so much. You know, it, it was so important. This foundation was established on, on a whole dream or a premise that my father put in place in 1966 before his untimely death. You know, he was adamant about the importance of education, the, the importance of continuing education, the importance of literacy, the importance of music and arts education. And that's what we do. So, you know, to be able to partner with Akashi and with, with the illustrator, Rachel Moss, and to bring his, his lyrics, his, his, one of his most famous songs to a young mind is, is certainly benefiting of what the mission of the foundation is. Carla Redding Andrews, Vice President and Executive Director for the Otis Redding Foundation. They have two children's books now, Respect and Sitting by the Dock of the Bay. Both of those songs will be performed in concert by local musicians of ATL Collective when I'll host City Lights Live, an evening of soul music. Tickets are at wabe.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.